millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Uh, I've been awake for uh, away, beg your pardon, for a week or two, uh, hence the lack of recording. So anyway, back in business now, and we're looking tonight at uh, another of Sean McMeekin's books. You'll remember I talked a lot about his book Ottoman Endgame. Um, he has got a book Stalin's War, a really interesting thesis. Um, about um, Stalin, the Second World War, and the uh, kind of really turning a lot of the, the kind of conventional ideas that we have um, about uh, Stalin's role uh, on, on the heads. The many of the ideas uh, about uh, Stalin's perceived weaknesses in 1941, um, and the idea that the Stalinist regime was particularly on the back foot. Sean McMeekin makes the argument that uh, even despite the uh, massive reversals of 1941, the regime itself was fairly, fairly intact, and that a lot of the the kind of the intelligence groundwork, uh, espionage groundwork, had been ongoing uh, since the the mid 1930s. He's got a lot to say about the levels of infiltration of the American government and under Roosevelt. 
suggesting that uh, later on during the McCarthyite era, that uh, despite the, the kind of like the viciousness of McCarthyism, McCarthy himself, even though he didn't know uh, a great deal of what he didn't know, what he didn't know, he wasn't completely wrong either. Um, okay, but we're going to turn our thoughts to the uh, origins of the Nazi-Soviet pact. So one of the arguments put forward in the book um, about the uh, the Popular Front era, the mid-1930s, when Stalin decided that um, his uh, deliberate kind of attacks on social democrat parties and the, the kind of the weaponization of uh, disputes between social democrats and, and communists had been a huge tactical error. Um, he decided that uh, there were some opportunities to form popular front governments, and particularly, uh, he, this, this leads Stalin to meddle in the Spanish Civil War. The contrary to um, what some what has been argued by some historians, um, Stalin had little real interest in seeing the Spanish Republic survive. He um, gave arms to the Spanish Republic in drips and drabs, really in sort of the most minimal uh, of uh, uh, amounts, and particularly also a very, very minimal amount of, uh, of personnel. Uh, Stephen Kotkin uh, paints a very dramatic picture of um, Stalin's tanks um, saving Madrid, which you know to some extent is true, but this you know uh, one battle a victory does not make. Anyway, I'm going to look at the um, at the book Stalin's War now, and here we are looking at the um, the period um, throughout 1939 um, in Chapter Five, courting Hitler. It was no accident that Stalin distanced himself from collective security in March 1939, just as Britain got serious about it, writes McMeekin. The closer the Western powers and Hitler drew towards war over Poland, the harder it would be for Stalin to pretend that bringing about such a conflict was not his most cherished foreign policy objective. Litvinov's collective security chatter had served a diplomatic purpose. Um, this is Maxim Litvinov. Um, Stalin's um, foreign policy uh, spokesman for his, his foreign policy commissar um, before obviously he was pulled um, because of his Jewish background and replaced by Vyacheslav Molotov. Um, but only as long as Stalin had not, um, had not had to pledge the Soviets to intervene in a real con armed conflict against Hitler as Britain would surely now demand that he do, and to help Poland, one of Russia's traditional enemies, and a serious Soviet military opponent as recently as 1920. So the point that they're making here is that um, Stalin's uh, anti-Nazism in, in 1939, as we later find out by him signing the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in August of that year, is really kind of... Uh, highly superficial. He did see Hitler as a threat, but that was as far as his um, opposition to Hitler really went, as far you know, as far as the, the threat pertained to the Soviet Union. Um, when it came to the integrity of Poland, he was committed to ending the territorial integrity of Poland. Um, for a variety of reasons, Stalin throughout the 1930s had viewed 
Poland as one of the greatest threats to the Soviet Union. He had bitter memories, he was closely involved with the uh, Soviet invasion of Poland in 1920 and the humiliating defeat outside Warsaw and the Vistula. Um, and so he had a, a lot invested in the uh, the defeat of, of Poland and, and its uh, subjugation uh, and, and division. So joining with Britain's increasingly um, robust stance towards Germany as 1939 wore on, um, Britain signs the Anglo-Polish Defence Pact in 1939, in, in March 1939, uh, following the fall of uh, Czechoslovakia. A hint of the true face of Soviet foreign policy was provided immediately after Prime Minister uh, Chamberlain proclaimed his fateful guarantee of Polish independence in the House of Commons in March 31st, 1939. Not, that is, uh, not, not that is, of Poland's territorial integrity, as neighbours with designs on Polish territory noticed. Chamberlain's statement has received opprobrium over the years, much of it deserved. Hitler read the loose guarantee of Polish independence as a green light for adjusting Poland's borders. Even as Poland's foreign minister, Josef Beck, told Chamberlain's declaration, uh, took Chamberlain's declaration as a British blank check, a solemn vow to intervene militarily if Germany threatened Poland's independence. Both interpretations suffered from wishful thinking. Enabled by Chamberlain's poor choice of words, the upshot was a simultaneous encouragement of German diplomatic bullying and the stiffening of Polish resistance to it, which ratcheted up the odds of war. In fairness to Chamberlain, writes Sean McMeekin, there were good reasons for the subtle wording. To have guaranteed the entirety of Polish territory, as Chamberlain's critics have often insisted he should have done, would have been to recognise the opportunistic Polish seizure of Teschen from the Czechs two days after Munich, an act of territorial larceny that, like Hungary's seizure of southern Slovakia, had played a role in the destruction of Czechoslovakia that Hitler had just completed. Poland, as Chamberlain knew, had signed a non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany in January 1934 as a hedge against Soviet aggression. Foreign Minister Beck had visited the Führer's mountain retreat at Berchtesgaden as recently as January 5th, 1939, where Hitler had proposed a deal to compensate Warsaw with more territory at Czech expense, Carpathia-Ruthenia, in today's Ukraine. In exchange for Poland turning over Danzig, um, or Gdansk because it's now known, and the Polish corridor to Germany. Beck, though happy to pocket Teschen in the wake of Munich, was now having second thoughts and he refused. However alarming Hitler's recent behaviour had been, his bullying of Chamberlain at Munich, to the brutal state-enabled Kristallnacht pogrom against Jews and Jewish-owned businesses carried out across Germany on November the 9th and 10th, 1938, to the occupation of Prague on March the 15th, Poland was not blameless in the Czechoslovakian tragedy. Personally affronted as he was by Hitler's move into Prague, Chamberlain had to consider uh, 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 had to consider opinion in the cabinet and the and the Commons. The Liberal and Labour opposition, however, wary of Hitler and Nazism, were reluctant to be drawn into war against Germany by a Tory government. The Tories in Chamberlain's cabinet 
including the Foreign Secretary Viscount Halifax, were no less leery. An unconditional guarantee of Poland's integrity would have pleased the gung-ho Winston Churchill, but his belligerent anti-Hitler stance was still a minority position in the party, as had been made clear by Churchill's exclusion from the last two Tory cabinets, including this one. It bears repeating that Winston Churchill was a political non-entity before May 1940. He was a, a member of um, Chamberlain's War Cabinet uh, once hostilities begin. Yes, this is true. However, for the most part, he's a political outsider. Why? Because Winston Churchill routinely adopted the most preposterous and unfashionable um, and often laughable views. It was Winston Churchill who backed um, Edward VIII during the divorce crisis and even uh, appeared in Parliament roaring drunk proposing that a King's Party be established. It was Winston Churchill who uh, opposed any semblance of home rule and threatened uh, suggested it be dealt with violently, and um, this is home rule in, in India. Even when most Conservatives, um, Liberals and uh, Labour Party members looked objectively at India and recognised that some sort of Dominion status would eventually have to be entertained. Um, and unfortunately, into all of this comes Churchill's often quite mixed rhetoric on what to do about European fascism. He was initially quite fond of Italian fascism, seeing it as a, a marvellous opportunity to deal with unruly Bolsheviks. Um, and he becomes a, a convert to the cause of uh, uh, opposing appeasement to, to Nazi Germany. But he converts that reasonably late in the day. So Churchill, we have to really kind of um, look at Churchill in a, in a meaningful context, which as a historical figure, particularly here in Great Britain, is very, very difficult to do. Um, and if we don't, then none of this makes a great deal of sense. Moreover, a commitment to defend Poland at all costs, like an invitation for Churchill to join the cabinet, uh, would have um, been understood by Hitler as a virtual co um, commitment to fight. For this reason, Chamberlain could not have issued one without risking the collapse of his government. Seeking political and diplomatic cover, Chamberlain had tried to enlist not only French but also Soviet support for a statement guaranteeing Polish independence, which, when you consider it, it's a, sort of an, an absurdity, really, that um, any Polish government might be uh, invited to even con consider such a thing. Despite his own misgivings about Stalin, Chamberlain had arranged a meeting with Ivan Maisky, the Soviet ambassador to London, in the hope of extracting a Soviet endorsement. Carefully, Maisky had told Chamberlain that he might say on his own authority that the USSR appreciated the principles embodied in the statement regarding Poland, so long as it did not quote Maisky Litvinov of Stalin as having done so on the record. But even this qualified endorsement of Chamberlain's Polish guarantee was rescinded when Litvinov informed the British ambassador to Moscow, Sir William Seeds, on April 1st, 1939, that Maisky had been misunderstood 
and that Chamberlain's statement on Poland was not at all appreciated. Britain, uh, Litvinov told Seeds, could pursue its own policy. The Soviet government would stand aside. As if to underscore Moscow's distance from the Western powers over Poland, three days later, the Soviet news agency TASS emphatically denied a French news report that the Soviet Union had undertaken or promised to undertake to supply Poland in the event of a war with war materials and to deny its war materials market to Germany. The truth was that the Soviet Union had given no such promise and assumed no such obligation. So much for the supposed Soviet commitment to collective security. Um, as we know, Stalin at this point was uh, entertaining details of the Nazi-Soviet pact, which would also, which was in the large part an economic pact. It was a non-aggression pact. It was also a, 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 a very extensive trade deal in which raw materials from the Soviet Union would flood into um, the war industries of Nazi Germany. This, from the kind of the Marxist-Leninist perspective, was how Stalin imagined that Hitler could be appeased. Now, Stalin was aware that he wasn't uh, prepared uh, for war, um, and though, even though the Red Army was actually very, very well equipped at this point, its entire command structure had been destroyed by Stalin during the purges. So Stalin was um, knew that he had to play, pay for time, play for time, what kind of pay as well, really, to be honest with you. He had to play for time, and how you did that, in his eyes, was you appeased Germany's capitalists. Why? Because in a, a Marxist-Leninist reading of what Nazism is, is that it is really the, the attack dog of the capitalist classes. Um, it's not quite that, really. I mean, Nazism is, is something, is a, a racial phenomena um, that doesn't really fit in quite easily into that sort of categorization. Um, Nazi capital was not in charge of Germany, or German capital was not in charge of the Nazi regime uh, in 1939 by any stretch of the imagination. Stalin believed that uh, German capitalists getting cheap war materials from Russia wouldn't think uh, about invading Russia and upsetting this wonderful source of raw materials. But that's to uh, misunderstand Nazism and uh, if there was an, an economic thinking going on at the time, it was Hitler's economic thinking, which was really, once we conquer the Soviet Union, Germany's economic problems will be over because we'll have all this land and territory that we can farm. Uh, the German people will eat and we'll be able to war, wage war against whoever we like because we will have the resources to do it. Hitler was very, very uh, fixated on the fact that famine had been used as a weapon um, by the Allied powers against Germany during the First World War and that Germany had been reduced to starvation by uh, Royal Naval blockades which lasted until the end of the Paris Peace Conference. So he was very mindful that food would be the way in which you could secure German security and uh, German um, uh, prosperity. Still, writes Sean McMeekin, despite his own deep-seated hostility towards Poland, for diplomatic reasons, Stalin could not simply cast off all disguise. On April 17, 1939, he authorised Litvinov to discuss the possibility of a mutual assistance pact with Britain and France. Significantly, however, 
Litvinov instruct Maisky, instructed Maisky to leave the initiative to the British and French. In a sign of the bad faith with which he viewed the Western powers, Stalin... Um Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. That very same day, authorizes ambassador to Berlin, A.F. Merikalov, to visit the German Foreign Ministry in order to reassure the German State Secretary Richard von Weizsäcker that Stalin's foreign policy was in no way anti-German. Weizsäcker assured Merikalov that there was no reason why Russia should not live with us on a, on a normal footing and from normal our relations might become better and better. For all that, Neville Chamberlain had been abused for his naivety uh, and his reading of Hitler. It's worth noting here that the British Prime Minister was perfectly justified in his wariness of Stalin. Soviet Russia, Chamberlain wrote, wrote his sister in, uh, March 19, uh, in, on March uh, 26th, was both hated and respected by many of the smaller states, notably Poland, Romania and Finland. After the Russians disowned his March 31st statement on Poland, the Prime Minister concluded with justification that the USSR did not have the same aims and objects as we have, or any sympathy with democracy as such. She is afraid of Germany and Japan and would be delighted to see other people fight them. Well, this is precisely what Stalin presumed the Western Allies, um, the British and the French, were looking to happen as well. Um, Stalin's worldview um, was that the immediate threats facing uh, Germany, except facing the Soviet Union, Germany, Poland, and Japan, were a kind of a sort of a second tier of of threats uh, would be Britain, France, and America, and that these were all, to his view, capitalist powers. Um, and that they were all uh, part of the encirclement of the Soviet Union. The second tier of kind of new imperialist powers, Germany, Italy and Japan, um, were going to be part in uh, Stalin's view of a kind of like a civil war amongst capitalism. Lenin had basically suggested that the First World War was as, was as much, it was a civil war amongst capitalism. And now you, there was these, these two kind of modes of capitalism, this is sort of the Atlanticist capital of Britain and America, 
and a, a new kind of violent nationalism, um, or this revanchist kind of catching up imperialism of um, Germany, Italy and Japan. And, they would, and Stalin, you know, believed that they would fall out amongst themselves and that there would be a long war in Europe. And this would be something, in his eyes, probably like the First World War, where everyone would get bogged down. It would, uh, the First World War came close to spreading revolution across Europe from Russia in 1918. And in 1939, Stalin believed that finally the revolution would happen. 20 years late, but it would succeed and that um, the capitalism would finally destroy itself and that it, if Stalin was able to stay out of this and direct the enemy um, to direct his enemies against one another then the um, the prospects of eventually being able to send and sweep the Red Army across an exhausted broken Europe fomenting revolutions and uh, you know, Bolshevik or Soviet governments wherever um, they arrived, um, this would be kind of child's play. You'd, you'd have the Red Army but at the English Channel. Um, and in a way, in by the, by the summer of 1940, uh, this is kind of what happens. The only problem in the summer of 1940 is that Stalin needs the French and the British to put up a long fight. Uh, the, a speedy victory for fascism is not what is required. A speedy victory for fascism is more, is more more problems, more trouble. A speedy a speedy a speedy victory for Hitler means that Hitler can then look hungrily at the Soviet Union, realizing that uh, the the Western design should had it ever existed of sending the Nazis and the Soviets against one another. What that hadn't happened, and the Soviet ambition that the Nazis uh, and the Western Allies destroy each other um, hadn't exactly happened. In fact, Hitler had triumphed, which was the nightmare scenario for Stalin. Sean McMeekin writes about France um, and where they sat within this crisis. The beleaguered Edward Deladier government in Paris received no better treatment in Moscow. France's military attaché in the city, um, Colonel Auguste Antoine Palaisé, um, had, be, uh, had been trying to cultivate contacts in the Soviet High Command for two years. Although France had been theoretically a Soviet ally since 1935, Palaisé was not even allowed to attend Red Army manoeuvres. As a disgruntled Colonel Palaisé uh, reported to Paris, Stalin's spy chief, Leventi Beria, had placed him under round-the-clock NKVD surveillance. In June and July 1938, because, uh, because to furnish intelligence requested in Paris as the Czechoslovak crisis was breaking, he'd been, asked too, he'd been asking too many questions about the Soviet military posture. On April 13th, 1939, as, a sh as, as the showdown over Poland was heating up, Palace um, uh, visited the Soviet Defence Ministry to request an urgent audience. He was rebuffed without explanation after being rebuked by his superiors for failing to furnish decent intelligence on the Red Army. Palace reminded the French High Command in a plaintiff report filed on October the 19th that 
I assume I posed here in an atmosphere of revolutionary terror, a terror which has still not ceased today, and which renders it all but impossible to enter into genuine relations with Soviet military personalities. Palace added dryly that relations between our two countries have not been, in general, of a nature tending to facilitate my mission. Although Stalin's government had been dropping lumps of coal into French and British laps all winter, the first sign of genuine revolution in the Soviet foreign policy came on April 27, 1939, when Livinov and Maisky were summoned to Moscow for consultation. A dramatic scene was enacted in the Kremlin as Litvinov came in for vicious abuse at the hands of Vyacheslav M. Skryabin, um, the Bolshevik name for uh, Molotov meaning hammer. The chairman of the Council of People's Commissars, the hammer to Stalin's steel during the Great Terror years. Uh, Molotov had worked closely with the Vojt, Vojt is the, the name for Stalin, means boss, drawing up purge lists and death quotas. They co signed 3,167 execution orders on a single day, November the 12th, 1938. The atmosphere, Maisky later recalled, was as tense as it could get. Molotov became violent, colliding with Litvinov incessantly, accusing him of every kind of mortal sin. Stalin puffed at his pipe during Molotov's tirade, making clear to Maisky that Molotov, an old Bolshevik, an unsentimental foreign policy opportunist, was now in favour. Next week, the hammer came down. On the night of the May the 3rd, 1939, the Soviet Foreign Ministry on Kuznetsky Must uh, was surrounded by NKVD troops in a blunt coup that saw Livinov and his top appointees physically removed from the premises, along with virtually all Jewish employees. As Molotov recalled, Stalin had ordered him to purge the foreign ministry of Jews. Not only was Stalin jettisoning Litvinov's policy of anti-Hitler collective security, but he was extending an anti-Semitic olive branch to the Nazis by purging Jews from the top Soviet foreign policy establishment and turning it over to a Gentile, Molotov. Stalin was courting Hitler. Okay, so we'll resume this in uh, a week or two. Um, but as I said, the this is a, a really, really good book. I do urge you to get it if you can get your hands on a copy. Stalin's War, a uh, really interesting kind of revisionist take on Stalinist foreign policy. Anyway, thanks so much. Uh, and uh, we're back to business as usual now. So uh, all the best and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Bye-bye.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.